0: Hey everybody. We had a bit of a technical issue with our audio quality, unfortunately, in this episode. So what you're going to hear is a strange mixture of my own audio coming through the microphone on top of my head. So there's a fair bit of noise along with that. The rest of the guys, they sound great. We're sorry and we'll make sure that that does not happen again. Hope you enjoy.
1: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those
0: emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Happy Fourth of July, feelers. I'm Aaron, and here with me to talk about one of our favorite films to watch during the red, white, and blue holiday is my best friend, Patrick. Hey, everyone. But also here this week is a returning guest, Josh, from the LSG Media's Science Fiction Film Podcast, who joined Don Shanahan and I for our Connecting with Classics episode on Casablanca earlier this year. Josh, you've been promoted, my friend. Welcome to The Big Show.
2: Hello, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, listeners, we know you love this movie. We love this movie. And we're going to have an awesome time talking about this movie. We do promise you fireworks. But before we get to Independence Day, we always like to catch up on what we've been watching this past week. So Josh, this is your first time on the show and the first chance you get to do this. Have you seen anything lately that you want to share?
2: Well, unfortunately, this is a pretty terrible time for me to uh, unveil it, but this is like really crunch time with my uh, professional other, you know, actual paying job life. So I have not been able to get to the theaters as much as I'd like to, but I've caught a couple things um, at home, uh, you know, catching some late night movies. That I've uh, that I've enjoyed and um, that are kind of a little bit under the radar. Um, I watched a movie called uh, Anthropoid uh, about a week ago, which is uh, it's named after a operation. Um, Cillian Murphy is the the lead in it, and it's the real life story of the assassination of uh, General Reinhard Heydrich of the uh, chief of the SS in World War II. It's these uh, Czech um, commandos that are parachuted into um, occupied Czechoslovakia. And uh, it is a pretty intense movie. Uh, I looked into it a bit, and it is relatively true to life. Um, they get a lot of the details right. It's pretty gritty. Um, I don't think it's an all-time classic, but it's a really interesting take on something that I think a lot of people don't know about.
0: Yeah, I've heard of this one before. When it came out, a couple of critics that I knew saw it, and, and all of them raved about it, but then it just never seemed to kind of catch fire with even the movie, like, cinephile general public.
2: Yeah, it was odd, especially after watching it, being like, why are, aren't more people talking about this? I mean, it's not a Saving Private Ryan, but it's definitely worth a view in a discussion.
1: Is it subtitled?
2: No, it's not. It's all, uh, there, well, there are portions that are subtitled, but. Um, man, as much as I recall, they, they kind of transition into English pretty quick. One other oddball, in addition to my only other card viewing was actually for, for the rare occasion, keeping up with the TV show. So I did watch season two of Westworld, relatively close to it airing. Um, but the other one I watched was another one, which I had not heard much about. And I have a friend that has been raving to me about this movie, which is called Mr. Nobody. And it stars Jared Leto. And it is a, real out there sci-fi movie that has uh it is a movie that almost demands multiple viewings it's extremely uh kind of fractured intentionally in terms of chronology and there's a lot of vagueness about what actually happens and what doesn't and it's a movie that i've just kind of been dying to have some of my other friends watch so i can talk to somebody about it because i literally know two people that have seen this thing and one's like I love it. And the other says, uh, it's just too out there. I can't figure it out. So I would say both of those might be a little bit under the radar for people and are are worth uh, taking a peek at. Is it on Netflix? Uh, It was when I watched it. Both of those, I believe both of those were on Netflix. Uh, Mr. Nobody was probably two, three weeks ago and Anthropoid was uh, a little bit more recently.
0: Well, I will try to get to Mr. Nobody soonish within the next few weeks. Uh, crazy time for me, too. I, I love Jared Leto, and I love sci-fi, so I guess it's worth a shot. I think it's one of those Netflix-produced sci-fi movies they've been putting out, and so far they've all been relatively awful for me, <laughs> to say nicely, I guess. And, and so I kind of was nervous about it, but I'll take your recommendation for sure on that.
2: I won't say it's amazing, but I would say... I haven't even figured out if it's amazing yet. I need to watch it at least one or two more times, but I definitely, my mind was chock full of thoughts from the first view.
1: That's
0: what we like. We love that. Right, Patrick? Exactly. Exactly. Well, what about you, buddy? What have you been up to, my friend?
1: Oh, man, I have had an Aaron Sorkin television renaissance, and I don't know where it came from. I I guess about a month ago, I started rewatching The Newsroom and, of course, really loving it. I remember when you first recommended it to me, maybe about two years ago, and Of course, not having HBO, I couldn't necessarily chime in. So when it made it to Amazon Prime, I went ahead and checked it out. And of course, I fell in love with it because it's Aaron Sorkin and it's the walk and talk and lots of good stuff there. So I started rewatching it. Well, then I started picking up on some of the nuances that exist in that show, knowing that they exist in some of his other series. And so I started watching Sports Night, his first introduction into television. It's a 30 minute sitcom that. Um, I, I just, I just adore, and it's two seasons, which is probably five seasons too short for me. Uh, I think it had a lot going for it, but it just didn't find its audience, but that led me into what I think is probably my favorite television series. And that's the West. And what I wanted to do this time came in conjunction with a podcast that I had heard about that was hosted by one of the cast members, Joshua Molina as well as, I'm going to probably butcher his name, uh, Rishkesh Hirway. So if you guys are listening to this show, I don't think you would be. But if you are, I apologize. And uh, even if you're not, I apologize. But what these guys do is they break down each show. They talk about just their response to it. Um, It's really just a a rewatch fan type conversation. But being celebrities and knowing the people that they do, occasionally they'll have former actors on the episode to interview them. They had uh, a guy named Eli Addy, who was a writer, starting with season three, but he was a former speechwriter for Al Gore. So he gives some real good insight into what's fictional, what's real when it comes to the the world of The West Wing, and it's fantastic. What it's allowing me to do is, I enjoy the series anyway, at least the first four seasons. But having this conversation behind it is really enhancing my viewing experience because. I'll I'll watch an episode and then I'll kind of look forward to the episode that they cover and they're all the way up to season five right now so I've got a chance to binge a little bit before I end up um, catching up with them but it's been really fun you have this kind of double enjoyment because of the fact that I enjoy the show I know I'm gonna like certain pieces and parts and I look forward to seeing if they pick up on some of the small things that I've seen throughout each episode. So like if there's this moment with one of the cast members mispronouncing a word, I'm going to wonder, hey, are they going to catch that too? And if they do, I'm like, yeah, I did that. I'm cool like you guys. But it's been really fun. And I've been kind of doing a trifecta of Aaron Sorkin shows with that, uh, Sports Night and and Newsroom. So that's, by, that's been kind of my world over the last couple of weeks.
0: Well, that's awesome. It's still a show that I haven't watched, sadly. I know that's crazy, with me being a huge Sorkin fan as well, and you're shaking your head at me, and that's fair. That is fair. You I deserve that.
1: No, no, no. no. I'm shaking my head because I know it, you'll probably never get to it because of your just in a with with movies. So that's a, I, that's a word I made up. That's a short word. How
0: long are the episodes of West Wing? Are they an hour?
1: They're, yeah, they're the 45 minutes. And okay. Here, here's what – I'll propose this to you. I'm not saying watch the series, but what I'm saying is that Aaron Sorkin – left after the fourth seasons. So if you would ever watch this the first four, then you would be completely satisfied.
0: How long are the podcast episodes? I uh,
1: would probably forty five minutes to an hour. So
0: about the same length as the the
1: show episodes. Yeah, yeah. Same, the the thing that I I don't know if I like or not is when they have a guest, they typically kind of trump gate their conversation about the episode and they lead into talking about, you know, what are you doing these days and how did the West Wing affect you and stuff, which is nice. It's really cool to get insights into that stuff. But at the same time, you kind of want more conversation. So when you see like, hey, this thing's an hour and a half and oh, it's with this actor, I'm probably going to get at least half of the episode with them talking about where are you now? What are you doing? And how was the West Wing for you? That kind of thing. So it's nice, but I prefer the conversation.
0: Yeah, I got to get to it eventually, man. Aaron Circuit is just my my goat when it comes to writing. Josh, are you a fan of him?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Sports Night was actually the first thing I ever viewed of his that was introduced to me by a good friend. And just the the dialogue is just unmatched. The way he writes dialogue is so incredible. And I was actually, I really enjoyed West Wing, and uh, especially the earlier seasons. Even though there's a, you know, a very strong political slant, I don't think it's beat you over the head. I think they handle things really fairly, um, which is very rare in a, you know, a show that political, and especially Martin Sheen is, is a very political guy himself. And mm-hmm. I think they do a great job with it, but yeah, both well, of them are awesome.
1: I think what's great about the West Wing is, well, it does, it's a Democrat, it's a democratic office. So you can't apologize for that. You got a democratic, uh, a democratic president. And what I think the show does for me personally is it, presents the sense of optimism. And I think that exists in newsroom as well as sports night, this idea of we can be better. We can can strive to be better. And when you have an optimistic president, you want to vote for him. Like I'm going Bartlett 2020, you know, let it happen. And anytime I, I dive into that show, I'm just so enthralled with less about the politics and more about the people that are trying to craft a vision for this world that, that they live in, the world of West Wing and and America and all that stuff that's surrounding it. So it's a very, it's a show that I think is built on hope in some ways. And I think that that's what I really gravitate towards. Also great dialogue and walk and talk, but uh, that overall tone of the show feels very optimistic. Even when they're dealing with really heady stuff, uh, there's this great balance of being able to see kind of a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to have to watch it eventually. Well, I've been watching movies, not nearly as many as usual. I think I checked my stats because I'm a stats guy, and I'd watched like five movies the past week, and that was twice the lowest. I hadn't had a single week this year under 10 movies watched previously to this past week, so that tells you just how obsessively I watch film. Uh, The ones that stuck out this past week, though, a couple that I want to recommend that you can actually get to. Right now, one is Sicario, uh, Day of the Soldado. So I'm a humongous fan of the original film. Sequel, I was nervous, okay? We lose Deneva Lenouve, we lose Roger Deakins, we lose Emily Blunt. These are three incredibly huge pieces to that film. And there's a new, uh, I think he's an Italian director that was brought on to, to cover this one. And I just didn't know how it was going to play kind of without Emily Blunt. Well, it played exactly like I expected, which is almost devoid of a moral center. Many people are going to be frustrated with this one because it is a... It takes kind of the violence and the gut punch aspect of the first film and it just cranks it up to 11. It's rough. It's hard to watch. People exploding right in front of your eyes. There is not a lot of diversity and kind of equality being pushed in this film. I mean, it is absolutely trying to show you the worst case scenario about the border. And potential scenarios that could be occurring now. I liked half to three quarters of this movie quite a bit. It is pretty well matched in the intensity of the first film. Uh, It's not got as many like iconic scenes. Uh, If you've seen the first one, you can't help but remember this border crossing scene where they get stuck in a traffic jam. Like it is one of the most intense scenes in all of film history. In my opinion, there's nothing quite like that, but they do come close. Brolin and Benicio del Toro are wonderful in this movie though. I love them. And really Brolin is the guy, at the heart of the film at this. Um, he makes some choices that lead to a scene at the end that is pretty powerful emotionally. Honestly, one of my, my favorite scenes of the year. And I wish that this film would have ended with it because after that, it's like Taylor Sheridan decided to get a little too cute and tried to kind of tack on some morality at the end that just doesn't really feel completely earned with the characters in the world that we've been living in now for two full movies. That kind of bothered me. It sounds weird to say that, right? Like you would think I would be championing those moments, this brief moment of hope and optimism but it just doesn't feel right kind of so it took the movie down a notch for me but um, I-, I would say I enjoyed watching it I don't know if that's the right word to use because it's it's, it's something you get through <laughs> if you survive it it's not something that you necessarily are eager to go back and watch again but um I, you know it's a, it's a well-crafted movie uh, for what it is and I, I do think that it would be something I should recommend to people that enjoyed the first film at least Josh did you see it
2: I haven't seen it yet. Sicario was one of my favorite movies like of the last five years. Probably. I loved that movie. Can't say enough about it. Um, so I'm hesitant. I'm, I'm increasingly hesitant about sequels in general. Um, especially sequels that don't seem to necessarily be needed. I hate to use that term. I like, you know, like the first movie I think does everything it needs to do. And yet I loved it so much that I'm, I'm definitely going to see it. Uh, Is, is, uh, Deacons, did he do the cinematography of this one? No. Uh, it's it's a step down, but it's very
0: good. It is very good. There are some scenes in it that I actually thought of you, to be honest, because there's a couple helicopter sequences that I was thinking of Black Hawk Down and how, you know, we've, we've actually, all three of us have really. You know, admired the Black Hawk Down helicopter sequences. So there are some great shots in this film. It's just not the same overall quality. A lot of it is in the desert, in the Mexican desert, where it's just, there's nothing but dirt, you know, and some cacti, and then whatever vehicles they're in. So it's, it's different. Uh, it's, it's, it's not as good, but it's not terrible. It's it's better than I was thinking it might end up being, at least. Another one I do wanna mention is Beirut. That one hit DVD last week, I believe, or maybe it's this coming Tuesday. Now I don't know. But when you ever you listen to this, go Google it, because it should be out by then. Uh and this stars John Hamm and Roseman Pike is in this as well. It's not a historical film but it's kind of got a tone of a historical film it's set on the backdrop of uh, the Lebanese Israeli crisis led to the issues in the early 80s and John Hamm is a negotiator who has been a former diplomat had some tragedy occur and now he's come back 10 years later to negotiate the release of a hostage and this film is an adult thriller like they don't make anymore there's not a ton of action there's a few scenes But it is dark in that Michael Mann darkness kind of way. Like, seriously, like, scenes don't have a lot of light to them. And John Hamm brings it. He is probably the best I've seen him, to be honest. He is super powerful emotionally in this film. Just captures this really gritty, hardcore... He's got this wall built up from what happened before. He's kind of got closet alcoholism, but he's got to pull it together and get this thing done or people die. And he goes in with this ballsy approach, just talking smack... Terrorists terrorist, essentially, because he doesn't care anymore. And it's, it's really, really a good watch. if you like just smart witty dialogue, and the situation to kind of t- twists and turns, but not necessarily um, played out over just a bunch of explosions, this is a good one to watch. So I, I really enjoyed it as well, and I would recommend it. So yeah, those are the two for the theater and home pick that I would say, go watch if you have time. Alright, enough of that. Patrick, we got any announcements?
1: Yeah, we do. We wanted to let our donors know that our July donor pick is out there. Voting is on now through July 10th, and so if you want to visit patreon.com slash film, you can make your votes there. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, please, for the price of a cup of coffee or maybe a pack of gum, you can become a Patreon subscriber and get in on the voting. So July, we are cruising into July, and we are targeting five movies that are headed by our one of our favorite action stars, Tom Cruise. And we are going to be voting on Edge of Tomorrow, Rayman, Jerry Maguire, a few good men, and yes, back again because we love it so much Days of Thunder. So get in on the voting. You have until the 10th to get your votes in, and then we will find out what we're going to be talking about. Any of those picks, I would be completely happy with. So, um, Really glad that we have those out there. Now, before we get into our conversation, we wanted to give you guys a heads up about one of our favorite podcasts, The Next Best Picture.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia,
0: and I am the host of The Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards
2: website, Next Best Picture. for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestfiction.com.
0: All right. Well, everyone, we are back, and it is time to get into Independence Day. This movie is 25-ish years old at this point. So, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to spoil it. And if you haven't seen it, then shame on you. Come on. What's wrong with you? Go see this film. It's the perfect time of year to see this movie. It is the 4th of July. It is upon us. Independence Day itself. Title of the movie. Go see it. Don't get it spoiled. Come back later if you haven't seen it. All right. Well, guys, let's kick the tires and light the fires. Josh, what is your one-word takeaway for Independence Day?
2: Okay. Well, I, I don't know. This might be a little bit of a different take, but this is something I've, I've definitely thought before, but really felt that on this last viewing so my my one word takeaway is innocence um i think a lot of movies uh, or in really pop you know creations in general music whatever are a product of their times but there are a few movies that strike me so much as independence day in this last viewing um, i think you guys are similar to me in age uh, mid mid to late 30s ish whatever i'm 34 so i was i think 13 when this movie came out in the mid-90s. And I'm I'm a big history and world politics kind of guy. That's what I did academically uh, in college and uh, kind of my general interest in reading and paying attention to those kind of topics. And the mid-90s were such a unique period of American history. Um, if you look at it, when this movie dropped in 96, you know, in the last five years before this, the Cold War ended, right? The good guys win. Everything is great. Um, the economy is booming. The uh, Desert Storm had happened, which was just this unparalleled, one-sided victory over what at the time was regarded as a very formidable force, the Iraqi army. Uh, the internet was just sort of getting out there. This this new, very much American invention, at least how it was uh, pushed. Uh, you had cooperation in space. I think the, the Russian, um, the Mir station, had a visit from American astronauts the year before this. So we were kind of making friends with everybody. American might was kind of just widespread and everything just looks so great. And I think this movie can only exist as it is. It's so earnest and and almost naive in in, in its attitude, you know, in the sense where if you came out now, I think it would be people would roll their eyes. You know, in just over a decade after this movie came out, you had presidential sex scandals, impeachment proceedings, Columbine and then all the other school shootings, 9-11, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the cover-ups, the torture, uh, Patriot Act, recession, um, the information, you know, the internet now becoming such a widespread thing where people have everything at their fingertips and can communicate and can gripe about all these things, um, and I don't think, I think this movie would be su- such a different perception in, in our modern jaded culture. But at its time, even even the stereotypes, these you know, some of the characters in this movie are, you know, I, I think there's a lot of critics that talk about, all oh, the characters are, a lot of them are kind of two-dimensional. They're caricatures. There's certainly some uh, silly stereotypes. You know, the old, the Jewish father, the the gay boss, the tea-drinking uh, British uh, pilot sitting over there in the Middle East. But it's so earnest in its presentation. And it, I think it could really only be that way and have faced the, or, or had, the reception it had. This is the first time I was ever in a theater where people cheered and clapped at the end of it, and I just don't think that happens anymore. So, I think this movie is thing. It is a cultural phenomenon. It is because of its place in time, and that is a kind of a mark of uh, of innocence of the innocence of America at that time. Wow. Well, that that
0: was great, man. That is a heck of an opening. Um, I gotta say, I agree with pretty much everything you just said, Patrick. What's your one word takeaway?
1: Well, when you were talking about that, Josh, I was thinking about that idea of optimism and naivety. And I definitely sensed that when I was watching it this time around. And it sort of influenced my one word, which was together. There is a unified sense that we get throughout the film that the world is it under attack because it is. That's the literal thing that's happening. It's not just the U.S., although most of the stuff takes place on American soil, rightly so, because it's an American produced movie and, and all that. So there's a lot of patriotism that exists but for me as, a, as an audience, when it comes to the summer blockbuster, it has to have at least two elements, action and comedy. That's a, that's a full-fledged great blockbuster for me. And if those are missing, I'm left kind of waning in my enjoyment. I'm going, okay, that was okay. It had a lot of laughs, but eh, it was okay. And I think what ID4 does from a summer blockbuster stance is that it has those two elements, but it brings with it this solid amount of sci-fi and drama, which is very surprising. And the great thing is that none of these elements is dominating the movie. It has this balance. It has the sense of bringing all four of these elements together in a way where each one complements the other. So just when you have a moment of real drama, then it's followed up by a moment of levity. And then there's a great action set piece. But none of that feels like it's, it can't be called a drama. It can be called an action movie. Yes, because there's a lot of action, but there is a lot of drama in it. There's a lot of comedy. And there is just so much going on that I kind of have to make an indirect comparison to fallen kingdom where there was a lot going on, but it just didn't make a lot of sense. And I think when you bring a movie like this together and you have great exposition, you know, spending 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, giving us all of our character pieces, and it's still not feeling like you are um, overwhelmed with a bunch of this or that. I think Independence Day is one of those rare films that is incredibly fun. It's incredibly dramatic. It can be meaningful. It gets your fist pumping. I mean, like you mentioned, there are people clapping in in a theater at the end of this thing. Um, it's rare that a movie can do all those things at once. Like it t- typically would sacrifice one of those other three elements for the sake of, of bringing that emotional kind of connectivity. But this movie finds a way to bring that all together And it really works well. And just like bringing the world together to fight a common enemy, I think the movie as a whole brings this stuff together to to make it pretty pretty amazing.
0: I got to agree with that too, man. Well, my word I think coincides with the words that you guys chose actually very well. And that is investment. This film is a great example of why I just love movies. In general, They can transport us to a place where we're smiling, where we're laughing, where we're crying, all of the span of, you know, two and a half hours. Every time that I watch this, I just feel very pulled into the story, hence that word invested. It is an experience for me, and I think that it kind of exemplifies what it's all about, seeing a blockbuster like you were saying, Patrick. It's how it makes me feel um, or what it makes me think about. This does both of those things. And I think that that's what makes Independence Day an all-time great for me. It's not got the perfect acting. Um, there's issues with that. Its plot is not... Really super riveting and complex uh, when it comes to sci-fi concepts. But because I care when a child suffers a loss, I'm invested when a dog is jumping through an explosion and I'm hoping he doesn't die. I care when a couple uh, or a father and a son are struggling through their relationship history in the midst of this incredibly awful, traumatic, possibly world-ending event. But yet, are able to be reconciled. I care when he makes that speech at the end. I get tears every single time. And so, yeah, I mean, it may not be an Oscar-winning masterpiece, but I think that it truly is a defining part of my own personal history with film. And I can't watch it without remembering the many nights I spent watching it on repeat with my dad on VHS It is a a two-and-a-half-hour journey that I honestly will take over and over and over again, and I absolutely love it, and and I think that uh, everything that we've all said is true. So, with that, here is the first thing I kind of want to talk about, and I think, Josh, that you touched on some of this in your One Word Takeaway. I'm curious what you guys think about why this film has such a strong fan following, enough that it warrants a sequel, which will henceforth not be mentioned on this show. Actually, I'm going to give a quick backstory. Patrick and I had intended to cover ID4 Resurgence last year, two years ago, sorry, 2016, for our, in our first ever 4th of July celebration episode. We bailed on that because of what that movie was. It, it was just too painful for us. To want to talk about it because at the time we were really trying to stay positive and we just couldn't. And it kind of made us sad, <laughs> you know, that they could take such a great property and turn it into that. I don't know what it is about putting Jeff Goldblum in sequels and them not doing well, but hey, you know, the shoe fits. I guess that's not going to work. But anywho, enough about that. My question is about this one. This one has a 63% on the Rotten Tomatoes meter from critics. It's not really that highly regarded. So I'm wondering, what do you think makes a film this cheesy, with over-the-top, frankly, not always great CGI, and a massive amount of wild, unlikely plot happenings so iconic that it sticks out among other blockbusters of similar ilk?
2: Well, for me, I, I think I did sort of, I talked about the it being a product of its time, beyond just sort of the cultural sense of that. You know, also look at were there other movies that kind of had that same over the top, Your, you know, The Rock, you know, the early Michael Bay movies that I still liked um, were around then. But something I, I talk about a lot on the science fiction film um, podcast is a critical thing for me in a movie is, you know, I don't care how realistic it is. I don't care how serious, how believable. I care that a movie sets a paradigm and sticks to it. And I think this movie really does that is it realistic? Of course not. It's you know, the action is over the top. There are so many plot conveniences, things that just happen. But I think this movie really stays consistent to what it is and it really believes in itself. And I think it's something that we've been battered down these days with Michael Bay and similar knockoffs, the endless Transformers reboots, the I haven't seen um forget what's Lost World, whatever. Jurassic, War, Jurassic
3: World, <laughs> Fallen Kingdom. <Yeah. laughs>
2: Haven't seen it, but from what I've heard, at least it seems in that same kind of ilk where you just—it's so much splash and no heart. And this movie has the heart and has the consistency along with that um, to to be something that you can embrace, where you can say, "I love this movie." This might be in a top list of yours, but not a lot of people will say like this is truly a great film. Even the people that say it's amazing, but it—it it is wonderful for what it is uh and i you know there's a there's a fine window for that and this kind of nails it i think
1: well and there's there's an argument to be made and we bring this up either in conversation on the show or offline about being unapologetic about what you are josh you articulated it really well there's the sense that id4 is saying this is who we are we're not changing it we're telling the story we're not in it to try to prove that aliens exist We're not in it to try to tell you that um, we can destroy a crazy life form with nuclear warheads or whatever. I mean, half of the country is destroyed at this point. And by the end of the movie, I'm not thinking about how are they going to rebuild the United States because these major cities are destroyed. No, I'm thinking, heck yeah, the aliens just got exploded all over the world. And I think for me, when I look at a summer blockbuster like this, and I think why this holds up is because of that ability to say, we are this, and we're not going to apologize for it. That suspension of disbelief is so almost disconnected from your even trying to make it believable that it makes it easier to enjoy a movie. And we have that great heady sci-fi that Aaron and I love, and and I know you do, and I think what we try to what, what's meant to happen is we're supposed to connect that to ourselves. Like how do we as humanity connect to AI? And when it asks us to ask questions, when you have movies like Interstellar that deal with humanity and these things like that, those are purposefully giving us the opportunity to question things about ourselves and have those great coffee shop conversations afterwards. ID4 is meant for us to say, put your butt in the seat, sit in for two hours, and have a great time because we're about to tell you a story that is very predictable and very shallow to a lot of people, but it doesn't have to be unenjoyable for that matter. I, I get to participate in the 48 hour film project every year. And that's basically what we do. We put together a simple story that can be followed because we're more concerned about the entertainment factor and making sure that it's memorable. And that's what I think really carries with it. ID4 is memorable. I remember the marketing that went into this. There was a timer you go to a website, this is when like the internet was starting to explode a little bit. The The viral marketing in its early day for this movie was so much fun. The fact that they're calling it ID4, I mean, that was a cool thing for me. Like, hey, we're initials, we don't even have to call ourselves Independence Day. And I just remember just the hype of it being so good that to be let down would be even more memorable than being satisfied with it. And so I think it carries a lot of just pay off weight to it more than anything.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with both of those things. I mean, there's a small handful of films that I put this in that for me are those five-star summer blockbuster movies like this that kind of perfectly blend all of these elements you were talking about in your one word takeaway, Patrick, you know, I think that this goes for me alongside Armageddon and Twister. Those are the films that I can compare to having a heart at the center of them. And, you know, I look at the rest of Roland Emmerich's filmography and it's like, it's more Michael Bay, right? Than it is Independence Day. And I think that it's gotta be people's ability to accept the emotional connection within these characters without looking at them as those caricatures, caricatures, without looking at them and laughing at them, I think that it's a wonderful way to do the setup for this film. I mean, it starts right away, right? That's another thing I love about it, is that it, it begins instantaneously with the action of, The ship is coming over the earth. I mean, it is happening. There's no long buildup with the characters at the very beginning. So when we start to meet the characters, we already have the situation at hand, right? We don't meet them and then they all suddenly realize that there's something going on. We meet them as people are reacting to this big event. And I think that that services to get us into this film. And I think that's a big deal. I think that's a part of why we are able to love this one is because right off the bat, I mean, you're on the edge of your seat. You're wondering immediately what the heck is this signal? What is going on? And what's it counting down to? You're right there with the the characters in the film. And it's two and a half hours that for me never feels like two and a half hours. I mean, I I could sit there and watch this and never blink. I am on it the whole time. I think that critically speaking, If you try to evaluate it and take the heart out of it, that yeah, you could probably get to that 63%. Like I can see where that comes in. In this last viewing, I noticed that I just always felt something that overrid that critical part of my brain almost immediately. So I would hear something kind of silly and I'd be like, oh, this is actually a little kind of dumber than I thought it was. And then I'd be like, oh my God, I forgot about that moment with his wife. Right. And then like, and then I don't care anymore at all. Like the, The silly thing is gone because I'm invested in that relationship. So I think Josh, you nailed it really in your one more takeaway though, that I don't think that this can exist in this form today. I just don't. I think that like many things in film, that the social media climate, the ability for us to quickly put our thoughts out there and for groupthink to shape opinions is would kill anything that tried to be like this.
1: Well, let me ask this question to both of you guys. Do you think the the world we live in when it comes to film and our expectations, do you feel like we're more as an audience conditioned to want to find the reality, even in our fiction. And what I mean by that is, do you think one of the reasons ID4 couldn't exist among the ones that we've talked about is the fact that it's so unbelievable that we couldn't find a realistic connection to it, and therefore it would fall on its face?
2: For me, I don't think it's the believability that doesn't work. Nowadays, it's the the heart of it, I guess. The thing that we love about it I just think now would come across as eye-rolling. And instead of, you know, the group experience back then was going to the theater. And yeah, the internet was kind of happening. But now the group experience is like downloading our thoughts into a forum or on Facebook or on Twitter. That's the group experience is like, let my opinion is the important thing. And, and my my reaction and me voicing that and seeing what other people think versus the actual shared experience of seeing that and feeling it. And I just think people are more jaded than they used to be. And there would be so much backlash about oh jingoistic, patriotic, you know, this is practically a propaganda movie. America saves the world. And I think there'd be so much of that backlash that the earnestness of it would be kind of drowned out.
0: Josh, you actually hit on something that I wanted to talk about. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use that as a segue. <laughs> Um, after I answer your question, Patrick, I do think there is something to be said about people wanting realism. I'm one of them. In most films, I do value a realistic scenario. and I can be taken out of many, many films when things happen convenient, or I don't think that they're what I would use the word earn. But I don't care about it in this one at all. And I actually have found ways to justify some of the things that happen in this film because I so highly don't care at all about the realism factor. I think that there's a a scale for me and maybe others have this scale and it's just a different, like they fall in a different place on this scale. But for me, if you can hit a certain level of feels, then it tips. Right. And it, and it, it kind of, It just overcomes, I mentioned that earlier, it just kind of overcomes that other stuff about realism. For me, I don't care as long as it's consistent. Like Josh said, I do care about that. If you're going to give me silliness, it's got to be kind of silly the whole way. You can't try to be serious and then make it silly in one spot because then it sticks out like a sore thumb.
1: And I think that's the success of something like Twister because it does the exact same thing. There's enough heart in it and enough comedy that one doesn't feel like it's conflicting with the other. It's not like you have our main characters saying something funny, but it's not inconsistent with their their dramatic impact. Yes,
0: exactly. So yeah, I mean I I don't know. I think the people in general do want to feel smart about themselves. They want to they want to feel that they're smart and they want to be proud of themselves for figuring things out. And Independence Day doesn't give you that. This is not a movie that you need to solve or you need to be like, "Oh, I you know, this is really high-level thinking here and oh, what this we really could in, you know, get the aliens like this." Cuz come on. This isn't, we're not going to actually fly into the spaceship and give them a cold, okay? Like, it's just not going to happen. So I don't, I jaded is a good word for it. Jaded is a good word for it. Well, Josh, you mentioned something about the political climate. So I'm going to go there next because I think that watching it this time was a much different experience than I have ever really had before. You know, I got nervous tweeting over the last few days about, the 4th of July because people are so anti-patriotic right now. And I'm not really the rah-rah American flag kind of guy. I don't really believe in like worshiping America. I'm proud and, and I'm thankful more than anything that I was born here. And I have the freedoms that come with that. And I'm all about supporting that, obviously. You know, Josh, you and I are prior military. But the level of hatred right now for our current uh, sitting president and many policies that are happening made me notice this film in a different way. The thing that stuck out to me was President Whitmore and his ability to lead by example and... And the fact that early on the film very quickly establishes he is a former fighter pilot from the Gulf War... And the, the people, the media, are actually attacking him because he's too young and doesn't have enough like foreign policy experience. Doesn't have He's not a politician enough. Well, hello. Uh, <laughs> um, we've got somebody who had that same criticism recently and is now sitting in the same chair. So I wonder what you guys thought about that. Do you think that this film can still be enjoyed in the same way today as it was then amidst this different political climate? Or is it
2: problematic for some to watch it today? I think the the big problem in our current context is the the patriotic elements, the not just patriotic, the kind of borderline jingoistic, like, uh, oh, all right, bloody Americans have a plan finally, good, good, you know that that kind of like America saves the world thing, the flag waving. I think that's the stuff that people that are just looking to have a problem with those kind of things are just going to immediately go to that because it's very easy to go to that with this movie. Um, That being said, it's very political, but then again, it is not remotely partisan in that sense. So it doesn't, the big issues that we have with our current world where everything is dichotomized, everybody's this camp or that camp, I think you you actually kind of avoid that in this movie because it's just it's so about, as you said, um, Patch, togetherness, right? It's a, Everybody's in it together. So I think you avoid some of that uh, that partisan kind of element, but you, you have a different thing that I think people would – I think what I said before is roll their eyes at. Um, and not everybody, but certainly some people.
1: I think for me it's the suspension of disbelief that separates that for me. I, I didn't pick up on a lot of the – this wouldn't play well in the political climate that we live in right now because I'm honestly – I like Bill Pullman, but I'm gonna think of him first and foremost as Lone Star before I think of him in any other way. And that's not that's not a slight to him because I think he has this ability to carry that presidentialness as a as a former military or as a I guess a current military former military person, but in a lot of ways he reminded me of of Martin Sheen as Bartlett in West Wing. It's it's interesting to to watch this in Light of Watching the West Wing because Martin Sheen's character President Bartlett has the opposite criticism in that he doesn't have a military background and yet he's leading in some of these military decisions early on in the first season. And I I think that where we are now as as a country, I I had the ability to separate myself from the reality of where we are because I don't know that I've ever felt like a president is with Whitmore. I've never actually felt that way about a president, a president like Whitmore. Um, most of the presidents in my lifetime, particularly the ones I've voted for, have been like, yes, he's fine. <laughs> but I, um, you know, for the most part, I think it kept my enjoyment up because I was able to separate that and just live in this world of Independence Day as opposed to making a comparison to, to where we are now.
0: Yeah, I think for me, what I did is I admired him and I wished for someone with his decision making ability or for how I saw it portrayed. Obviously, so much happens behind the scenes in real life politics that we're not going to be aware of. And so much is spun by the media in certain ways that we're never going to really know the truth unless we're there. But I really get hyped kind of watching President Whitmore be president because I feel like he makes such great decisions. He, he, he treats everybody with respect and, and kindness. I mean, like I said, he leads by example. He initially is going to stay in the White House when the ship is above the White House. And he doesn't want to induce more panic. So he says, you know, go get the vice president and take him away. Keep him safe. But I'm going to stay here because I want the people to understand if they're going to have to stay in their homes, then I'm going to stay in my home as well. He evokes a sense of followership and loyalty. The general being so adamantly, like, by his side, like, sir, I'm not leaving you. Like, I'm staying here right with you, you know? Like, that's a leadership quality that you don't necessarily – you're not necessarily – you don't grow into that always. You are born with that to an extent, and he is a natural-born leader. And so I love that. I love at the end, you know, the fact that he's leading the charge in the fighter pilots uh, or the fighter jets. You know, he's got a daughter on the ground as well that he's got to worry about. But he gets up there and takes them right in. Some people would claim, oh, that's so unrealistic. That's so ridiculous. No, it's not. He's one of the only qualified people in the whole darn place. Like, of course, why wouldn't he be leading them at that point? So I just really do admire watching him be president. And, you know, on a side note, are President Whitmore and President Roslyn like the most amazing political power couple ever? You realize that? Um, Josh, I know you guys have a a Battlestar Galactica side podcast that you do, uh, with LSG media. So I wondered if you'd caught that too. When I saw her, I didn't remember that she was his wife and I was like, oh my gosh, it's president married to a president.
2: Yeah. That's exactly who, what I always go to when I see her for sure. And uh, man, that show don't even get me started. I love that. But, uh, yeah, that's a good, uh, Bartlett Ross in 2020. That's my ticket.
0: There we go. (laughs) All right. Well, the emotion of this film, as we've all kind of talked about, is definitely there. And there are quite a few primary characters and subplots that are going on throughout this story that are bringing different levels of emotional resonance. So I wondered if we could just start this off by just kind of going around, picking them out. Um, What's stuck out to you?
2: It's certainly an ensemble cast, and there's a lot of likable Actors and characters here, and you've talked about a little bit before, Aaron, about just how these are not overly deep and you know incredibly developed characters with these huge arcs, and yet I think it's so easy to invest in so many of them. And I kind of, I think, take a different approach every time. And this viewing, kind of going right off what we said, and I won't go into it too much because I might come back to some of it with my connecting point later. But uh was in fact President Whitmore. Um, he just seemed. I don't think Bill Pullman's performance was uh, Oscar winning by any extent. Uh, I think it's serviceable, but the character he's portraying is very real to me. This guy, especially early on, this feeling of being, not just being attacked and criticized, but kind of being borderline over his head. Like suddenly he finds himself in the Oval Office. Obviously he has charisma and looks, youth. He's got some of that Kennedy stuff going on to him. But he sure doesn't strike you like a politician, and you can see him just getting eaten up in in D.C. with all the political infighting that's there. And then even early in the crisis, some of the the the, the things he deals with, uh, the vulnerability you see, the the burden that he feels, the clear, the responsibility, the guilt, the remorse about some of his decisions or failure to make decisions, um, and then ultimately his bravery and, and the conviction of his decisions uh, was really the... That was the one I keyed in on the most.
0: Awesome. What about you, Patrick? Did anything or any particular relationship stick out to you the most?
1: I really gravitated towards David and his dad, Julius. I thought that that was just, I mean, I love a good father-son relationship. I mean, that's not something that is a surprise after listening to us for 100 plus episodes. But what I really enjoyed, I'm always going to enjoy Jeff Goldblum. I think he plays Ian Malcolm here too. It's just the kind of eccentric science nerdy guy. And to see how he relates to his dad from the very beginning, just as a side note, one of the strengths of ID4 is the way in which it sets up each character set, the way in which we get that initial investment. Uh, We find out so much from just dialogue, so much from the the set pieces, where people are, who people are with, and what the relationships are like. And then we get more discovery as the movie goes on. But I think the scene with David and Julius playing chess is such a, just a tender moment because you can tell Julius loves his son and he wants the best for him. But he also says is basically saying, you're an idiot. You it's been three years, either, you know, go back to her. Cause you know, you're in love with her or, or leave. And you know, he's moving towards the former because later on it's, just kind of explained, you know, he's in love with you. You know, he's never stopped loving you. And his ex-wife was like, well, that wasn't ever the problem. But I think the way in which David takes care of his dad, the way in which he is, <laughs> like, I think the one little moment that stood out to me was when he did, he checkmated him and then he kissed him on the head and said, see you later, Pop. I think that's such a great moment where you can tell my dad frustrates me, but I still love him. And I still need him to drive me around apparently because I don't have a license for some reason, but to see them kind of working together and then to see, uh, later on that moment where he's basically affirmed by Julius when he's drunk and throwing stuff around and saying the world's gone to pot. And Julius is like, get up off the floor. I mean, you're an incredible genius person and you can, you're necessary. And then of course he just arbitrarily feeds him the, the virus solution. And I just love how their arc has kind of brought them together or at least solidified what is I wouldn't call it a rocky relationship but maybe just sort of a timid one and I think it's cre- it creates a little bit more emotional depth as the movie goes on
0: it absolutely does I completely agree and you know that's why that moment is so powerful at the end when he brings his dad a Bible and a kippa right because his dad's been giving him this speech about faith but talking about how He hasn't prayed in X amount of years and he's kind of lost his own. And that's one of the moments of kind of like reconciliation that we see, the the things coming full circle with the relationships. Um, You mentioned one of my almost connecting points. I don't know. It's a personal thing for sure. But David and his ex-wife dealing with this uh, issue of whether or not they are going to ever be able to stay together or not. Um, and when he <laughs> when she says to him, haven't you ever wanted to be some part of something special? And he slams down the bottle and just looks at her with this shocking face of rage that we have not seen from his character and says, I was part of something special that hurt. Like that moment slays me that whole sequence. And then that leads to the the uh, dialogue you just mentioned, Patrick. Well, if it makes any difference, I never stopped loving you. And he's like, well, but that wasn't enough, was it? So. That one on a personal level is is very tough for me to watch and I think is very realistic. I think it captures what real couples go through in that type of relationship uh, problem. And so I liked that because it felt powerful um, because it was honest. The moment with President Whitmore and his wife, I I lose it. I'm not going to lie. I lose it when he goes to say goodbye to her and finds out and then he walks out. And his daughter puts her hand on his uh, hand and she's like, his mommy's sleeping. I I mean, that's some tough emotional stuff. And I think that's one of the things ID4 does so well is like it doesn't skirt around the personal problems that are occurring because of this massive alien attack. Right. We get plenty of the big explosions, but we get to see it on a personal level. You know, there's a a great scene that's for me the most or the first real kind of emotional moment when the ship is opening up and, you know, the the people are on top of the building and they're like, oh, welcome aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah." There's this sense of wonder. People stop running away, turn around and stare up at the ship like that's what we all would do, isn't it? Like if an alien spaceship showed up above us, don't you think we would all probably like, oh, wow, that looks kind of cool. Like we would be in awe. So I think that the characters end up being. What's Composites, in a sense, uh, for much of our own emotions, right? It's not necessarily about, like, what happens to David and his ex-wife. But through them, we can relate to maybe a relationship we might have to deal with or we might feel a certain way if we were put in this situation. The other one we should talk about is Stephen, of course, Will Smith's um, badass Marine character. This guy, he is so much fun in this movie. I, I mean, I think there's plenty of characters in here that are iconic and we all remember and there's so many great quotable lines of dialogue but I don't know if this movie works without Will Smith I love the overconfidence of the Black Knights in the very beginning when they're first going up against the aliens I, I get really I get chills because I know what's about to happen but when he and Jimmy are you know talking about lighting up the cigars at the end and and they're just they're certain that they're gonna take this amazingly huge spaceship out but that's what they have to feel like right that's real like you don't do that job as a fighter pilot unless you believe that you can take on an alien spaceship am i right josh is that kind of the sense you get from marines Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, you guys would believe that you could just charge that spaceship, like, as infantry and beat it up. Like, I believe that you would think that. So I really think it captures that feeling. And so, um, you know, he stays consistent throughout. He puts his cigar to his side and salutes the president. You know, he maintains a sense of military composure within the uniqueness of still having those outbursts. At different times, it's it's a great balancing out of this character. And it felt very realistic to me for how a a true military person might react in this situation, kind of being pulled (laughs) in different ways, but still maintaining that uh, type of loyalty to the way that you're supposed to act. And he brings with it a sense of patriotism that. Is what this film is all about in a a way, too, is, you know, rah, rah, like you said, go American flag, uh, bring the world together and and we can do this. We get a lot of that through his character. And I think giving him a a wife or a girlfriend at the time, fiance, who's a stripper uh, as someone that is a person he cares about, that he needs to be concerned with her safety and he has a reason to want to fight for for her. I think that was a good choice too, because some people may be like, "Oh, she's just a stripper. Why are you using this weird stereotype?" But no, I mean, look at her character. She's pretty well rounded. I mean, she is a stripper because she's trying to support her son. Like, this is a real thing that single mothers have to deal with that feel reduced to having no other option, right? So, for me, when he is trying to get her out of that, trying to be able to support her and her son and take her away from that lifestyle, I mean, that's that's something that I really resonate with. So, I, I liked his storyline quite a bit as well.
2: I do love it. he's. I think in general when I think back about this movie, I think most about about Will Smith. I mean if I if I picture a single character, it's probably I mean, Goldblum and, and uh Bill Pullman are right up there, but you really need that that action star. And he was really just this was him like I'm an A list action star almost. Like this and uh I think Bad Boys were like within a year or two of each other. But yeah, as uh <laughs> I kind of thought too in this watch, I was like, Oh yeah. Probably the most realistic part of this movie was a Marine marrying a stripper right before a combat deployment
1: because I've seen that. This movie would not be what it was without Will Smith. And he has that charisma to carry that character. I really, oh, it, it broke my heart to have that relationship with him and, and Jimmy just being that short because they had such great chemistry. He and Harry Connick Jr. were just fantastic. And I, I, I still crack up when you have that, see, you got to get down next to the booty. To, to really, you know, kiss kiss the booty and then the, the ring falls out and he's like, what is, this? and of course, you know, it leads into that, that one moment. To me, this is a Maverick and Goose relationship and I think that's where the appeal comes. I mean, Aaron, you and I are big fans of Top Gun and so having the ability to kind of get that for a moment, I don't think it's, I think it's that necessary confidence that's needed and he carries it so well throughout the movie and he brings that levity in moments that we need it. So we have this incredible firefight with him. His his partner, his, his flight, uh, I don't know, wingman has just died. And we're like, oh my gosh, what do we do with this? And then the next thing we see is him punching an alien in the face through body armor, we figure out later on that he's wearing. And then he's dragging the thing through this desert uh, with RVs coming at him. And so there's this great balance of being able to laugh and at the same time just continue to be invested in in him particularly. But that echoes throughout the rest of the film with all these different pockets of characters that we're getting introduced to and, and ultimately caring about to some degree or another.
2: Yeah,
0: I agree. I, I love him so much. And, you know, I think So the last the last character that we can touch on briefly is Russell Case, which is probably the wackiest part of this film for most people. You know, he's this guy who believes that he was abducted by aliens. And of course, I think most of this is just to build up to lead to that last final heroic act that he's going to make. But this time around, I kind of connected with him as an alcoholic father with PTSD from Vietnam who couldn't really deal with life without a his wife, um, you know, and a sick son that he just didn't know how to raise correctly. And he was struggling. And I, I got that sense this time around, you know, you have an older son who's trying to take care of the family and that relationship comes full circle too. And it gets to be reconciled, you know, with him making that volunteer, um, you know, for, to go up in the jets. And then there's a, I love the moment where the, the older sons comes up to him and it brings him coffee, right? Because that's really the first scene where you see him like coming back around to being with his dad and his dad's like, "Mm, yeah, you know, keep him coming. And it's played for laughs, but there's a moment there of, of bonding. And of course, when he says, as he's signing off, tell my kids that I love them. You know, that's, that's pretty strong stuff. And I, it's just such a great balance of the emotion with the cheese and, and the action. I I don't know that we'll ever see anything quite so perfectly tuned uh, as this one again. Well, the science fiction We've called it high concept. We've, we've called it kind of silly at times. There's, there's a lot going on here. Josh, you review science fiction films in bulk on your show. Like that's what the title of the podcast is. And I know you do some other stuff here and there, but you guys really hammer home on sci-fi. So you have talked through so many different movies. What concepts
2: stick out in
0: ID four to you from a science fiction perspective? Like what makes it kind of unique or special?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, Something I find, obviously I'm biased, but I find very interesting about science fiction is I truly feel it's, in a way, one of the broadest categories there is. And ironically, I think a lot of people really pigeonhole it. You know, people, if they're if they're not into sci-fi, quote-unquote, they think, yeah, oh, sci-fi, like alien stuff, whatever. Aliens and robots, yeah, sure. But I think sci-fi can be anything, with often the, quote-unquote, science fiction elements kind of being the window dressing that allows the telling of a story that might be a really deep, you know, dramatic or some really conceptual stuff that you couldn't do without those elements, right? You know, think about Moon or, you know, you mentioned Interstellar, Blade Runner, um, you know, that really explores some incredible concepts. Comedies that, you know, wouldn't work, you know, Galaxy Quest, things like that. Adventure, fantasy, you know, the, the Star Wars kind of things. Um, or in this case, what is really essentially an, an action or action disaster movie. Um, But the sci-fi concepts allow this, in this case, the, the scale of the alien invasion and the destruction is something I don't think cinema viewers had ever seen before. And, you know, but it also isn't just a exercise in spectacle, which Emmerich went on to pretty much hang his hat on, right? Your 2012s and... I don't know if he did day after tomorrow. He might as well have all those kind of things where it's 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 about the spectacle. This has the spectacle, but it, again, we've said it before. It has the heart behind it, and also I I just think they did a really great job with the the alien design, both their their biology, the the glimpses you get into their tech, right, the shield, the that cool like biomechanical suit they're in, um, the telepathic touches. Um, the, the ship design, both in the, right, you have the massive mothership, then you have these you know smaller ships, which are still 15 miles. Like, think about that, and the visual of them sitting over the cities. I mean, I think it, that, that's the stuff that makes this such a memorable, memorable science fiction.
0: Movie. What about you, Patrick? Did anything stick out to you about this one as opposed? I mean, we watched plenty of sci-fi ourselves. We just haven't talked about it as much uh, on a podcast yet.
1: Sure. The fact is we watch plenty of sci-fi, but sci-fi like this is not what we normally watch. We don't go into a movie expecting the alien invasion, expecting the kind of on-the-nose storytelling. And to me, I think that's kind of a welcome relief here and there. I'm a huge fan of heady sci-fi, and I'll never not like it, I don't think. It's always going to be one of my favorite genres. But there's something nice about being able to play in that sci-fi sandbox and having the ability to say, hey, what if... Because I feel like ID Four was a what if story. I think when you're when you're crafting a, a narrative like this, you're going, "Hey, what if what if an alien invasion happened, and what if they actually, again, you're going to suspend this disbelief? Why would they put themselves over partic- particular cities? Like, how do they know that these are the big cities that they're destroying? Why are they not just going for this and that or whatever? And I, maybe it's explained in the whole satellite uplink or whatever, but there's something nice about this kind of on the nose storytelling because it gives you permission to enjoy the experience. I think disaster movies can do one of two things. They can either amplify spectacle or they can make you feel bad about characters and what's going on in the story. And I think what ID4 does is it gives you that massive destruction without feeling bad about the fact that so many people have died in all these big major cities because you're more concerned about how do we destroy the aliens. Part of that's because we're focused strictly on individuals. And I think that's a, a good choice to make as opposed to something like Man of Steel, where the big criticism is, look at how many people are dying in this city. And the, the the return on that is, well, look how many people died in all these other disaster movies that you don't really care about because you're more concerned about this other stuff. And I think that's what Independence Day does so well, is it gives us permission to not really have emotional investment in the masses because we have that nice emotional investment in the in the individuals and so the sci-fi behind it I think is more enjoyable than anything else I don't think it's trying to be a means to an end I think it's embracing the spectacle but not so much that that's all it's hanging its hat on
0: I would agree I don't pick out a whole bunch of things from this film that I think it does uh, uniquely or especially well um, when it comes to the sci-fi pantheon of the greats um, and and ideas of aliens and things like that. I do love the alien design that stuck out this time around. I I forgot how terrifying that one scene is with the flashing lights and like when the alien is coming alive and we think he's dead and they're cutting him out. That was that was crazy. Um, The interesting things that I noted this time around were I love the w- welcome wagon, the idea of the Hilo that's retrofitted to have these lights that can flash and communicate with the alien spaceship. I mean, that seemed to me uh, an incredibly realistic thing that we would try. It reminds me of Arrival and the way that they treat the alien spaceship in that kind of, you know, setting up a camp around it, trying to find a way to communicate and it, it being a global Kind of a, an issue with those because in Arrival, same thing happened. Pods land at various places and different countries are trying to figure things out. We this one, we're just following the Americans just like we are in that movie. But I love that welcome wagon scene. And it's also one of the best visual scenes of the film with that helicopter coming up with the lights flashing, a, a you know, with the spaceship off to the side. You can see the difference in scale. The other things that stick out to me sci-fi wise were really I, I like the idea of the virus. Uh, being input to, you know, ruin the system. I think that's a really fun concept. It wasn't probably the first time that's ever been done. And the dogfighting scenes, there's a lot of Star Wars uh, in this section. When the ships are going up against the alien or when the jets are going up against the alien ships, there are many scenes that look like they were straight out of a, of a star Wars film, right down to the fact that you're trying to kind of get this perfectly placed shot. That's going to magically take down the whole ship. Cause I I thought about that when I was watching it. I was like, Oh, this is kind of lame. Like, are we really going to believe that one perfectly placed bomb is going to take down this entire gigantic thing? It's going to cause this ripple of explosions. And I was, and then Right after that, I was, I was like, oh, that's, that's how we blow up the Death Star. It, like, so, okay, you're right. Yeah, that'll work. Um, I gotta buy that. And so I. Except it, Luke wasn't uh, drunk when, when, <laughs> he, when he did it. <laughs> that's true. He was not. The spoiler alert. <laughs> but it, it definitely, like, calls back to that. There's also uh, one of the scenes of the dog fighting reminds me, I think, of the way that they later would shoot some of the same footage for Ender's game. Uh, when it's showing... um, Gosh, I don't even remember the character's name, but uh, Mace, I think, or what, Maze. Maze? I can't remember his name. Mazer Rackin. Uh, I was close. Maze Rackin. <laughs> yeah, when they're showing the footage of him taking on the alien ships. And same concept, right? Like one guy taking everything down, perfectly placed type thing. You know, couple of jets flying around in this chaos. Hundreds of, like, alien ships. So I liked that it seems to... Both have taken inspiration from a film before it and then simultaneously inspired films after it. That was cool to me. Uh, Yeah. And I also like that there's a 2001 callback. Did you guys catch that?
2: The Hal login? Yeah. On on his laptop? Yeah. Oh, no. No, I did not. What is that? (laughs) When Goldblum logs into his little uh, high tech little hacker uh, laptop, it's uh, the the icon, that round red orb that is Hal visually represented. Um. It says, hello, David.
0: Oh, that's what I was going to say. Yes. Okay. So that is what I was thinking. Yeah. The the computer in the spaceship when he gets in there says, good morning, Dave. And that's definitely an intentional nod to 2001. So I thought that was a lot of fun uh, about this one as well. The last thing I just want to touch on before connecting points is kind of this idea that the film is too convenient and that it's too contrived. Like things just kind of happen too perfectly serendipitous, if you will. And I wondered if that affected your viewings because for me it did not and I I will just say to start off that what I felt was what I normally feel in films is that if your characters are miraculously coming together for no reason like they just accidentally come together perfectly at, at the right time to save the day That bothers me. But for some reason, when I was watching this one, I viewed it from a different perspective. And I don't know if that's something that I could take with me for other films or not. But the way that I saw this was, we're not telling a story about how these people eventually work their way together to solve a problem. But we're looking at this from a very high level view of the end result is that this thing is going to happen. And so we're going to watch how it came about. So if that's what's going to happen, then we have to see where they started. So now we're watching their journey to the end versus we're starting with them and they're going to make decisions that result in this thing. I, this seems really heady to me and, and it probably is just all my crazy way of thinking about it. It's like almost you know thinking of predestination in a sense, but like for me, that made me able to not care so much about the way that things happen conveniently, the way that characters just got to know each other at the right moments, got to be in the perfect position. Things like pilots who like crop dusters suddenly after five minutes being able to fly a jet. And I found myself during this film talking myself into explaining all of these things. I was like, you know, well, in a major crisis like this where the state, you know, the world, the fate of the world is at stake, you're going to learn to fly the jet. If you have any semblance of understanding, you're going to figure it out and you're going to do it. What did you guys think about that? Did that derail at all your viewing?
2: For me, it didn't, but it also because of uh, just harking back about that, the film sets this paradigm right where you don't you don't look to nitpick things because it has that kind of feel to it. But I think you're exactly right when you talk about having that perspective because really almost any movie which has some sort of uh, you know statistically unlikely moments which most good movies do, right? And at some point in most good movies the stakes should be high where the thing that ends up happening shouldn't be the most likely thing to happen. But ultimately it happens. Because it if, if if your movie's about something that is probably gonna happen anyway, not that interesting. So if you look at those kind of stories and you look back and said, like, okay, look look at all these key players and how likely was it that they all ended up in these places? How likely is it that Han Solo met this kid who happened to you know meet this old guy in the desert that oh just so conveniently was kind of looking out for him and and all these things come together and it's like but also find a real world event right a historical event a you know a a pitched unlikely battle um whatever it is and and if you trace back or or your your epic stuff your lord of the rings if you if you looked in the backstory, right, that, that is out there, (laughs) the extended stuff of like, how did each of those characters end up being part of the fellowship? Yeah. Like the odds are always unlikely because everything is about probability and chance. And I'm probably getting way too out there, but essentially, yeah, you're looking at ultimately the story we're telling is how they emerge victorious. And instead of, You know, looking at everything that could have possibly happened, you're looking at the characters that end up being eventful, but we're going to trace them back for these three days beforehand. So, yeah, you can nitpick it if you want, but that's who ended up being there, and that's who we watched get there. I think one of the big
1: strengths of the movie is the technique uh, that is used in Medias Race, where you start in the middle, and when you have that ominous (laughs) first shot of the shadow over the moon And you're like, what is going on here? And then it leads into the discovery of the sound. Like, oh my gosh. Our focus now is on this mysterious thing that's happening. So our introduction to these characters and how they end up getting to that point where they need to is less as important as that thing that they're getting to. Because we want to know what's going to happen. It did not distract me at all. I actually like stories where people come together and I'm not as concerned about how they got there, because the the realism or non-realism became a non-factor. It was that I wanted them to get together. I wanted uh, I wanted Goldblum's character to get connected with his ex-wife because I cared about that, because that was what was set up initially for me to care about. I wanted to see the president and his wife get back together because they were separated and because we were set up for that early on. We It's the relationships themselves that I think drive the fact that we want them to connect again at some point in the movie and so when that happens regardless of what the end result is where someone has died or someone has been injured we wanted to get to that point and now we're focused back in on this alien invasion and we're ready to see the aliens go down and now that these characters are together we have a legit shot in this universe to take them down
0: yeah. Celebrate. Yeah. Very, very good. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you guys had some great thoughts to share on that. And it wasn't just me like being totally crazy because <laughs> that would have been awkward. Well, does anybody have any last second things that you guys want to cover or mention before we head into the old connecting points?
2: Kind of a, a small thing. And I don't know even much of a discussion point, but really struck me this time is when you think about there's so much memorable moments and characters and beats, but one of the most memorable I think segments is, is the dynamic between Goldblum and Will Smith. And I couldn't believe like really looking at the movie this time and like, all right, I'm about to do a podcast on this. Let's kind of analyze it, get my thoughts together. It's like two hours into the movie before they're actually really interacting with each other. And the dynamic they have, I don't know if you guys feel the same way. I'm interested here is, is maybe one, For me, probably just in terms of on-screen interaction, not just a single dramatic moment or a line, but their dynamic back and forth, their banter, that whole thing is is the most memorable um, and fun, fun as heck. Um, And I couldn't believe how small, in terms of screen time, you're talking maybe 10, 15 minutes tops the two of them are together and and not starting until two hours in. Uh, Do you guys kind of feel the same way about that?
1: Well, I like the fact that they act as sort of an Abbott and Costello. You have like your funny man and you have your straight man. There's one of my favorite lines between the two of them is when the machine break or when the ship breaks loose and Goldblum's just freaking out. He's like, oh gosh, can can you get us out of here in in, in 30 seconds? And Will Smith's like, the fat lady hadn't sung. And he's like, whoa, whoa, we're talking about why are you so you're, you're obsessed with fat ladies. What's going on here? And it's that typical stuttering Jeff Goldblum type voice. And I love that chemistry. I, I didn't feel I didn't feel dismayed that we didn't get more of that because I think when that's one of the more memorable moments that sequence because they're saving the world at that point I would I would have liked to have seen that but I felt like what I got was enough yeah for
0: me. totally agree I, I mean their relationship just puts the stamp on this movie and it's what we need at that moment right because that's such a heavy moment will Smith is taking him into space in the alien spaceship and there's a great emotional scene there Gr- or just one line of dialogue where he's like, you know, I finally got to be here. And we knew because of just brief snapshots that he's dreamed of being an astronaut. This is his chance. He's in space. This is what he's always wanted. And so we're going to potentially give our lives to do this thing. And Goldblum brings that levity uh, to it with the humor that he has and, and the way that Will Smith and his character So I completely agree. And I, it is a credit to the both of them as actors and to their level of talent that they're able to do that for us so perfectly in such a small amount of time.
1: But I think it's a nice kind of cinematic replacement for what Jimmy was for, 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 um, for Will Smith early on. I think it was a nice way to say, Hey, that relationship is there. It's just kind of embedded in Jeff Goldblum now instead of, um, Instead of yeah,
0: it's good instead stuff. It. All right, gents. Well, let's get into our connecting points. Josh, I'm going to ask, as usual, for you to go first.
2: Right. So my connecting point, uh, which I definitely wouldn't have picked this out if you asked me before. I this most recent viewing when I probably hadn't seen the movie for uh, probably a couple of years was uh, is actually when they are first leaving DC. They're on Air Force One. The alien attack has essentially just started, right? DC is in flames. They barely made it out of there. Um, and we have this moment with the president and and kind of everything around him. He He's personally barely survived. He doesn't know anything about the fate of his wife. He is immediately feeling this guilt or remorse, like thinking in his head, it mentioned it right away, how many you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people of Americans that he's responsible for were just killed. How many of them wouldn't have been killed if he had ordered an evacuation of the cities, you know, whatever he had a day, two days before. And all around him, people are his advisors, his staff, they're pushing different things. There's this debate about nukes starting. And that moment of, of him, uh, of President Whitmore, the, the, that complex mix of emotions he has to be grappling with the weight of all those decisions he's facing and and really just things are not looking good. And that character at that moment and the, what he has to do to kind of push through that, the decisions he has to make that conviction because he, he really is, they show his vulnerability here. They show him he's not just, you know, the, the ultimate, and we talk about that speech and I'm sure that might come up in another connecting point. Um, He's not just that guy, he's not just that that fearless brave leader leading from the front. He is, but at other times he's he's a man who has been overwhelmed by the the array of of forces thrown against him and and the losses that they faced and what could he have done differently and what what to do from here he doesn't have a clear way out. he has no idea um but you come to see this character that is going to make the best decision he possibly can make with what he knows and he's going to put everything he has behind that and see it through to the end uh win lose or draw he's going to do the best he can but here you see him in that in a really vulnerable very interesting moment um and i like that and then obviously of course as a as a marine myself i connected with the the badassery on display with uh captain miller and and general gray the uh that senior uh, general who's kind of that, that loyal steady Eddie is a, is a Marine as well. So, Well, Lee lead, leading from that with, um, with Whitmore, I, I
1: think a, the scene that stood out to me, there were, there were several, but the one that really connected with me this time around was when Whitmore was talking to the alien via Dr. Okun or as I call long haired data, um, which was just weird to see um, Brent Spiner in a role that was not an Android. But a lot of times in, in sci-fi, especially like that heady sci-fi that kind of make you think, it's the ambiguity of the alien motivation that leads this charge of, the, of a film's story. And Arrival is a great example of that. It's, it's, it's a human-driven story with the alien as a backdrop, but there's also that mystery there. And I think this is a culmination of already knowing that the aliens are just bad. But we get more from Whitmore's conversation and eventually this epiphany from this mind melding of sorts uh, with the aliens, and it's it's said right there, the aliens don't want peace. Sure, we got that from them blowing up a helicopter. I guess trying to give it epilepsy or something like that. I, I just and then that explosion and destruction of all those major cities. I mean, it's kind of being hit over our heads. The aliens are not here for for peace. They want to do something. But it's when Whitmore says after that moment. Um, that really stands out to me. He says, I saw his thoughts. I saw what they were planning to do. They're like locusts. They're moving from planet to planet, their whole civilization. After they've consumed every natural resource, they move on and we're next. And then there's that moment where that officer just like pop, 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 just kills the alien like out of almost aggression more than necessity. And then he goes, nuke him let's nuke the bastards. And at that point, I am completely over the top, ready for some alien killing. I want the one-liners. I want the excitement. I want the action. And and that's what I got. Welcome to earth. Yes. Bring it on. And I just, I love that moment.
0: Yeah, it's good. I do love when the, the guys say, is that glass bulletproof? <laughs> and then they just, boom go right to it, right? And they're trying to, again, that speaks to what I said earlier about protecting him, right? They care. It's not just because he's the president. It's because of what Josh's connecting point was, because he becomes the leader that they want to follow. They know that they need him. They know that they need to follow what he is going to bring into this situation. And at my moment, I'm surprised that you guys picked other stuff. I almost want to just say you're wrong, but it's okay, because we're all going to agree that this is an amazing speech. So the speech, as it is affectionately known, this is one of the most amazing speeches in cinematic history. It's probably up there in a way with Quince monologue and jaws for me, as far as solo, uh, minute and a half ish long, you know, uh, dialogue pieces. Um, before I talk about it, I'm going to say this, this is an incredible story of how it got made because during the filming of the, the movie, um, they were sitting around and they were trying to decide what to do. And they realized that this scene, they needed something to pull together the unity and all of the survivors. You had all these different subplots and all these different people. And, you know, we kind of forget at times that this is happening all across the world. So they needed a way to bring that together and have that, you know, this is our Independence Day moment where we would all feel it. And one of the co-writers, Dean Devlin, said to uh, Roland Emmerich that it would be great if they could do a kind of a St. Crispin's Day speech that would be like the king rallying his troops. And if you're not familiar with St. Crispin's Day speech, it's um, a moment in Shakespeare's Henry V, where um, right before the Battle of Agincourt, King Henry is about to lead his outnumbered men into this battle. And he essentially says this day is called the Feast of St. Crispin. Uh, He that outlives this day and comes home safe will stand a tiptoe when this day is named, which is essentially the same thing as July 4th will no longer be known as an American holiday. Um, And so Roland turned to co-writer Dean Devlin and he said, oh, great. We only have to rewrite a speech as great as the St. Crispin's Day speech. How are we going to do that? Devlin goes away into another room. Five minutes later comes out with this speech as is. This speech was written in like five minutes. That's insane. Like the power of the speech and the enormity of, of where it is in the culture today, how memorable it has become. The fact that he was able to whip it out so perfectly corresponding to the same exact feeling we got in Henry V is pretty impressive. The whole film was actually written in the whole script actually was written in about three weeks. So it, it, it. This all just kind of came together magically, and the speech is a perfect example of that. I'm gonna. I'm gonna play the audio.
3: Good morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world, and you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind. That word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July, and you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live Our Independence
0: Day. All right, so what I get when I listen to this speech is chills, guys. I can't help it. I mean, it is a rousing moment for me. I want to stand up and fist pump anytime I hear this thing. Had it memorized. Um, for many, many years and could recite it on command. I think that it's so strong because we can just imagine leading up to this, the pressure that is on the president of the United States. The whole world is now looking to him at this point. They they believe the Americans are going to figure this out, a way to bring these things down. And if they don't, the world's toast. There are millions and millions and millions, billions even of lives that rely on his decision making, all based on a seemingly hopeless situation that is going to decide the fate of the human race. That's heavy stuff. And he's been dealing with this for 48 hours, including losing his own wife. And all I can say is that the way that he delivers this, it is more inspiring than almost anything I've ever heard in my life. In the military, in real life situations where I'm Trying to be motivated by a commanding officer or a leader or even in a job, this fictional man gets me so ready that I would fight for him, like I want to stand up and follow President Whitmore uh, more than I do real life people. So I think this speech is incredible it's amazing, and Independence Day would not be the same without it.
1: If you need some more inspiration to watch the West Wing, you get that same feeling from jed Bartlett I'm just saying just leave oh, my leave man. My
0: way to <laughs> suck me in
1: Josh you can you can attest to that right can you can you give Yeah you I right?
2: mean it's a very different context but he is certainly somebody that you sure. uh, regardless of politics the man is somebody you want to follow
1: Yeah. And Whitmore's right up there on a cinematic scale.
0: Great. Well, Josh, this has been awesome, man. I'm so glad you were able to join us for this. Um, When I looked back at LSG Media's list and realized that you hadn't been on an episode, i had listened to it, but it'd been years. I was like, oh, man, this is great. This is a great opportunity for you to finally get to talk about this movie, too. So um, where can people find you if they want to talk to you online? Are you available online to be talked to at all? Um, And where can people hear your voice uh, podcasting more often?
2: I am very minorly available online. I only have uh, I only have Facebook, and I only have it for the podcast. So um, I am there. I generally only interact with listeners. But um, if you look up LSG Media on Facebook, um, there's the main page, um, and then there are a variety of shows. Uh, full disclosure, I'm very much the B team of LSG Media. Uh, Dean is the creator, heart and soul behind everything. And he and Matt are on most of the flagship, the science fiction film podcast. I'm on some of those as well then Dean and I do uh, an X Files podcast. Dean and Jess cover some other TV shows. We have some new projects coming up. We're doing an actual play role playing podcast, which we're pretty excited about. Um, But yeah, you can find me on there. I'm Josh FNG, um, spelled out phonetically. Military people might get that, but it's E F F E N G E E. Um, And I just want to add a big, huge thank you. I'm a big fan of the show. Been awesome coming back on and talking to you, Aaron, and for the first time talking to you, Pat, because uh, the last time it was with uh, Aaron and Don on the Connecting with Classics. And uh, one other thing I'd like to add, uh, just in general to all the listeners um, of you guys, I am a proud uh, patron supporter of Feelin' Film. Uh, I would encourage you to do the same. And something another podcast I really love, uh, Decipher Sci Fi, Um, their host, Chris, says at the end of every one of his episodes, he says, you know, encourages you to support your creators on the internet. And I think that's an awesome thing to think about. Um, I do not put in nearly the work that Aaron does, probably Patch as well, definitely Dean, um, at being a occasional podcaster and just kind of hold down my end. But there are a lot of people out there that put a ton of work into a a free product that I think uh, can enlighten, inform, entertain. And uh, think about, you know, find those ones that matter to you and, you know, find a way to kick a, a buck, two bucks, five bucks a month. Um, I think it's really a, a, a good thing to do. So there you go.
1: Yeah, you can find me on social media at uh, Facebook and Twitter, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H, Shoeless Patch. Just look for me there. If you guys want to be kind listeners, you can leave us a review uh, typically on iTunes. Five stars is the best, uh, but we'll take pretty much anything that's positive because we like to keep it positive. So find us out there, leave a review, and uh, give us some encouragement.
0: Awesome. Well, you can find me all over the place at uh, Film Aaron, specifically on Twitter. You can also find me tweeting out of the show's main Twitter account at FeelinFilm. And then we have a Facebook group, um, which I believe Josh is in that as well. So you can probably find him there. Uh, the FeelinFilm Facebook group is easily accessible. You can just type it in the search bar or you can find a link to it in the show notes right now or on our website. And We would love to have you come be a part of that community. It's always growing and it really is a pretty good place. Thank you again, Josh, for being on and and all the kind words. We really appreciate that. I'm sure this won't be the last time. Listeners, can't wait to have you back as well. Until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film.